You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Studio Ghibli Edition, or Ghibli, or Ghibli, or Ghibli, or Giblet. As I like to say, Studio G. Studio G, as Jake likes to say. S. Ghibli, as I like to say. I've never said that. Disclaimer, that was a lie. We just spent the last five minutes looking up various pronunciations, and it felt like everywhere you went, you got a different one. So it's probably either Ghibli or Ghibli, but we still don't know about that hard G. So, folks, we're talking about a masterpiece of animation today, in my humble opinion. One of the great children's movies, maybe, in my humble opinion. We'll see if we want to go that far. But a really tip-top, terrific movie by one of the great filmmakers of the last 30, 40 years, however long he's been in mm-hmm. operation. One of the great living filmmakers, one of the one of the legends. You got your Scorsese, your Spielberg, your, you got a handful of people who are just living legends, and Hayao Miyazaki is one of them. He's, he's one of those people, he makes a movie, you automatically, if you like movies, you have to, you have to go see it, because he just, you trust him. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is, it doesn't matter... Whether you think you'd be interested, you're interested because it's Miyazaki. He's he's great. My name is Nathan. I'm your humble video host. That's Ben. He's just and uh, Ben is the other guy. Yeah. Hoop do do. Jake Mensel. Badoo. Hi guys. Hey, baby. Jake. Hi, Jake. How are you? I'm fine. It's our neighbor, Jake. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't try to sleep on me. Well, folks, there's no transition from that, <laughs> but. We're talking about <laughs> We're talking about my neighbor Totoro. Totoro, 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 Totoro. It's a great movie. Uh, what baggage did you guys bring to this? Were you familiar are you anime watchers? Are you familiar with the works of Hayao Miyazaki? I don't know. I'm it's being, I'm going to be interested to see how many of our listeners are familiar with this you know i feel like it has some cultural cachet like you can go to walmart and you might see a miyazaki movie on there you'll see spirited away you'll see spirited away sure. but disney acquired most of the catalog at a certain point so although it's not on disney plus no it's not i don't know who actually owns it right now most of the translations that we're familiar with on the classics were supervised by john lassiter who is a friend of miyazaki and a big disney guy well, he got canceled, but he was the he was the. What did he get canceled for? Hugging female employees, oh, or okay. it was one of the least egregious sounding, if I may be so bold as to discriminate between different cases that I had nothing to do with. So, Ben, we'll start with you. You big. What's your history with anime? What's your history with Miyazaki? What's your history with children's films? <clears throat> well, Nathan, let's see. I got. I think Spirited Away might have been the first anime I got introduced to. That was. Right when I started college, that came out, and I was hearing about it, and I don't think I saw it in a theater, though it was in select theaters at the time, because it was a big crossover deal. I don't remember seeing any anime before that, but when I saw Spirited Away, I kind of loved it, and then just started finding other popular things. Like, there was an earlier thing that crossed over into U.S. culture that I don't think we'll ever review, which is an animated version of Akira. Mm -hmm. Akira is this gigantic, insane manga about an apocalypse brought on by these weird kids with psychic powers who had been experimented on. Yeah, it's kind of proto-Matrix, proto-Cyberpunk, proto- mm-hmm. that and Ghost in the Shell were pretty influential on 
the strain of 90s and early 2000s American science fiction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Akira the movie is like this really wild action sci-fi movie that's hyper-violent at times and absolutely don't recommend it. But it got a lot of attention from from nerds and made made real inroads into American nerd culture. I saw that. I saw some other stuff. I just became interested in anime as a thing. When I found out about anime shows, somehow, somehow, oh yeah, right. Cartoon Network used to run episodes of a show called Cowboy Bebop, which if you know anything about anime, you probably heard of that one because yeah. it's one of the most famous anime shows back before they just did nihilistic absurd artist comedy sketch things on adult swim they used to mm-hmm. fill their kind of pad their lineup with yeah trigun and cowboy bebop and some yeah. of the classic anime yeah and, and 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 now that i remember i was familiar with dragon ball z as a thing right i never got into it and so i was familiar with the world of anime as some weird world of a kind of storytelling that i was unfamiliar with and not that interested in but after Spirited Away and maybe before that, after seeing an episode of Cowboy Bebop, I was like, man, that was really cool. I was, I'm sure I was in high school at the time. Cowboy Bebop, also inappropriate folks in a lot of ways and not exactly recommended. But I explored stuff here and there that I could find. And I didn't try to get full into anime, which there's a billion anime shows. And anime in Japan, I learned is everything from the most foul and perverse kind of thing you could imagine to the most like 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 a sitcom mm-hmm. anime sitcoms and shows about people who play sports and shows about giant robots and anime is just everything it's not a kids medium in Japan it's just everything and so i quickly felt that it was super perverse just the japanese tend to be gross and awful and very compelling, maybe precisely for that reason. Maybe so. Or at least in conjunction with that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that's to say, I I like I like animation generally. I've seen some really good movies, but most of those good movies are actually Miyazaki movies because he is not gross, hyper violent, hypersexual, perverse. He's like Japan. He's like the Disney, but he's like a more mature Disney in some ways anyway. Maybe we'll talk about the differences today between My Neighbor Totoro and an American kids movie. Well, I certainly want to talk about era. the differences between people do call Miyazaki the 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 Japanese Disney and or the it, Japanese Spielberg. Do they call him that, or am I just making that? I'm up? sure probably somebody has called him that. He is a populist. Spirited Away was, I think, to this day holds the record for the most amount of money brought in in Japan by. You know, it's been superseded by another by another anime, by another <laughs> by a really violent anime called Demon Slayer Wushashi. I, I I'm glad that Demon Slayer, Demon Slayer Wushashi finally had his day in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that you should expect. I don't know. Well, yeah, I remember people. There were kids on the playground back in my day, like in high school, I guess, who would say, "I don't like anime," and it always struck me as weird because it's such a broad thing it's just an animation style that encompasses all different kinds of stories from comedy to erotica to giant monster fights to robots to everything else you could name the better question is do i like this kind of story i thought but as i think back about it i'm like there there is a certain kind of uh, japanese worldview that Mm -hmm. you're almost always going to find from the darkest to the lightest stuff and it does inform these things in a way that carries across the genres. And 
there is a just a library of just the way that they draw people, the way that they draw expression, the big eyes, the demonstrative movements, the stuff people like to make fun of from Dragon Ball Z mm-hmm. and Speed Racer where they're flying through the air and, you know, <laughs> poised and with motion lines, with motion lines, the mm-hmm. stuff that the Wachowskis kind of turned into the Wachowski brothers, I should say, turned into the Matrix kind of mm-hmm. movie. There, there's a whole library of a way that that anime expresses itself that you can either dig or or not dig. or not dig. And Miyazaki doesn't do all of like he doesn't do the motion line type thing exactly. That I no, but of. he's still the characters are going to have giant eyes and like May, the little girl in this movie, the littler of the two mm-hmm. little girls, when she cries, her mouth is just going to open up into this giant maw, <laughs> and her eyes are going to disappear. Face gonna be a mouth. <laughs> yeah, her face, and that's that's a style, and I can understand uh-huh. somebody not liking that style. Although mm-hmm. I think that they're being silly because i think it's a beautiful style but i don't know jake your history with anime and i was an idiot who didn't who thought he didn't like anime period that i don't have any real history with anime at all to speak of watch pokemon or nope. anything like that we're, we're all yeah, a little I bit too old for pokemon mm-hmm. didn't watch pokemon didn't watch dragon ball z didn't watch avatar none of that stuff my introduction to anime was when Ben, I think, got me a copy of Spirited Away mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. For Christmas, was it? Yeah. And watched it with my kids. And they were delighted. <laughs> <laughs> Ian told me the other day, I don't like that movie. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty epic night. I mean, some of my kids liked it or wanted to like it or like parts of it. But man, they were really wigged out by just how off the wall... It was. Well, part of that is the cognitive dissonance. I think it's not even anything that he's doing, but it's what he's, what Miyazaki and what the filmmakers are not doing. Yeah. Because you have all these assumptions in the West about what narrative should do and how stories should work and what, what the tropes are. And it's just kind of disconcerting to be expecting the story to do the one obvious thing. And, and it never does. And then it never does, mm-hmm. or it goes a different direction, or this person that seems like an obvious villain actually isn't a villain. And some of that is Miyazaki's sensibility and him messing with you and him doing his thing. But I think some of that is just truly a cultural divide. And my kids my kids felt that and you can hear us talk about that somewhere else or in other places, I think. So, yeah, it was a great movie, but I watched my kids just n- have no handles for processing like what's it. what's the grid for, for this? Most of my kids, I would say, have no, no handles to process it and just be weirded and creeped out by it. So there's that. Nathan, you got me a copy of Cowboy Bebop not long ago. I started watching that, but the difficulty with watching that was that my wife never wanted to watch it. So. <laughs> and who can blame her? So I, that just kind of, just I haven't come back to it. Yeah. And, and I didn't get that because I think that all of our listeners need to rush out and get it. I just thought we talked so much about Star Wars and things like that. Might, well, might as well give Jake one of the texts. The Torah well, yeah, it of, been, of this kind of thing. It would have mm-hmm. been helpful to have had that under my belt going into our Clone Wars discussions fine, for our Patreon subscribers. Well, and I suspect actually we, you will probably end up finishing Cowboy Bebop one of these days because there will be something that will be approaching where it'll just be so maybe it'll even be the Cowboy Bebop live action show on Netflix or something. But mm-hmm. whether it's something that gauche or something more subtle, it, there'll be something where it's just like, oh, well, this is obviously deriving from the uber text that is Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, so well, I have to go Dave back Fil- to it. Dave Filoni will reference that all, reference Cowboy Bebop all the time as his inspiration. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
big inspiration for him. And he got started on Avatar, right? Um, which I've now watched with my kids. And that was a fun, cute little show. So Avatar, The Last Airbender. The Last that. Airbender. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's my baggage. And then the other day, let's see what I, I opened up the Studio G tab on HBO Max. The home box office network. And I'd heard about this Princess Mononoke movie. And I thought maybe we'll watch that with the kids. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we turned that off real quick. The lesson is always consult Nathan or Ben before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, well, so the next thing that I did was I was looking through just like I wanted something different for kids movie. And I was looking through something like move 20 movies or every kid should watch by the time they turn 12 or something like that. And my neighbor Totoro was in there and it had a common sense rating of five and under or something like that, or five and up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that seems pretty safe. Spirited Away was like 12 and up or something like that, or 10 and up. And so this is going to be toned down or whatever. And we flipped it on. It was like a month ago at this point. And man, we loved it. My kids laughed their way through the entire movie and thought it was the cutest thing they'd ever seen and super fun. And mm-hmm. so, and that's, basically what led us to to choose it. It was either going to be that or Spirited Away. Yeah, and we're going, I mean, if this show runs long enough, we will do Spirited Away because it's just like, mm-hmm. you could argue it's yeah. it's the best movie of its decade. I mean, it's it's just, yeah, it is a classic. Yeah, and maybe someday Princess Mononoke as well. Well, Princess Mononoke is a good lead into my baggage because I started with Princess Mononoke. And the reason I started oh. was precisely... Actually, was I'm sorry. I just realized I did too. But back in the day when I didn't I, have a handle for it. I'm surprised that you... I was, I yeah. was surprised. Like, I just, I just remembered because it didn't make an... Imp- like, I didn't even care about it at all. I didn't like it much. Right. I didn't really dislike it. It just didn't mean anything to me. I must have been 13 or 14. It was right. like, huh? What is this? What is all these... Where's the swordplay? There's a little swordplay, but... What's with all these boring dramatic There's pauses? <laughs> There's so much, so many people talking about things and like just being in the city and working. And your impression of that movie and and mine after <laughs> watching about five minutes, two minutes of it, where it's like we've got demons chasing people across the plains and heads being chopped <laughs> off. That's right. <laughs> it's like what in the world? I know. Right? Well, the the ridiculous thing about that movie know, is that it it starts out at, at 11 and then it simmers actually way down. It simmers way down. But there's no reason you should have made your kids make it through the first half an hour. But if they had, then there still would have been some stuff. But all well, yeah. that stuff is really front loaded in that movie. There, there is, there's plenty of action in that movie. It's an awesome action movie. Definitely inappropriate for kids. Who knows why I didn't like it? I'm not sure. Well, I liked it specifically on the recommendation of friends who were like, he shoots an arrow and it takes off a guy's head. (laughs) (laughs) You have to watch this, man. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) And I was in my phase where I had my group of nerdy friends and we wanted to find stuff that was extreme and we'd have sleepovers and watch evil dead too and just crap like that just because it was it had things that had sort of an early internet culture had a reputation as Mm -hmm. you know being a little bit transgressive or edgy or interesting and so princess mononoke from a very gentle filmmaker and ultimately even as violent as it is in its way it's a gentle movie but i don't think it really delivers on that edgy extreme (laughs) kind of thing that i was looking for but it was enough to get me hooked and then i also like you ben watched the adult swim stuff saw Mm -hmm. cowboy bebop 
and really responded to it. And what I love us particularly about anime and particularly that style and Miyazaki, really all of it is it's so influenced by the West. And so it's like, you're holding up this weird funhouse mirror. So it's like Miyazaki is in fact doing a Disney movie and you can tell that he mm-hmm. loves Disney, but it's filtered through his weird pagan, if I may say so. And we can talk more about that sensibilities. And it just really makes something that has a lot in common with the things that I like and that has the same touchstones, but reflects and elucidates the very things that that I that I love and that I grew up with. Like you can suddenly start to understand something about Beauty and the Beast or about how the narrative of your standard Disney movie works by watching what Miyazaki does with narrative in this movie. And something like Cowboy Bebop, which if people don't know, it's kind of a space Star Wars bounty hunter kind of riff. They're just taking this crazy kitchen sink approach and they're taking like French New Wave and films by Jean-Luc Godard the gangster movies of the 1930s and westerns they're taking all these american tropes jazz and Mm -hmm. throwing it in a blender but then it's being filtered through this weird eastern mystical sensibility and it's just the results are just i find endlessly fascinating not necessarily good not necessarily nutritional not necessarily healthy not necessarily things that i'd recommend but i'm just always interested to see like what is it that they see when when they see a, Ka- a john wayne movie what is it that they get out of it when, when they watch any any one of those things that are just touchstones for us what did the maker of cowboy bebop get out of casablanca when he saw it in translation what are the things that stood out to him mm-hmm. what was the existential spirit that appealed to him and so i've enjoyed a lot of this stuff i, I was a kid that used to collect I had a number of DVDs in the early DVD days of different anime runs, Bebop, Trigun, stuff like that. You know, obviously I like the more action-oriented titles. Samurai, not Samurai Champloo, but there was this Roroni Kenshin. Oh, yeah. I really liked. Mm-hmm. That one I never saw. It was pretty cool. You know, there's, man, someday for Patreon, we should do the live-action Roroni Kenshin movies. There you go. Maybe we should never do that. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I don't really bring them in. <laughs> I don't definitely bring them in. <laughs> we finally got our... I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm very excited about it. Oh, man. Super cool samurai action movies based on anime. Really fun. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I just... I have a lot of nostalgia, in case it's not obvious, for this kind of stuff. It was a particular time in my life when I was excited about pop culture and, and when it felt like... Maybe pop. This was around the time that the Matrix came out and stuff. It felt like maybe this kind, these kinds of pop sensibilities were really going to amount to some kind of an exciting artistic movement. Now, that was just me being a dork, right? But when I watched the Matrix for the first, Nathan, if only you knew how the world actually. Yeah, if only I knew that you know (laughs) Joel Silver was making a pretty buck off of me when I saw those Matrix sequels, (laughs) but. When I saw The Matrix, it's like, wow, somebody's taken all these different things. They've taken the John Woo action movies of the 90s. They've taken the go- the plot of Ghost in the Shell. They've taken The Chosen One, the, the Campbellian monomyth, and they've put it all in a blender. And they've just made something that's like, that really feels like my Star Wars. That's like mm-hmm. new and exciting. And I, we will talk about The Matrix movies one of these days because those are interesting. And I guess part four is coming out yep. sometime mm. soon. 
So, yay! yay. Directed by right. Lena Wachowski, as he likes to call himself. So, yeah, I just find these movies really fascinating. And I did see Spirited Away and House Moving Castle in the theaters when they came out and was really excited about them. It's not something that's really stuck with me. Like, I don't keep up with anime now. I couldn't tell you what the... Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know... It is a new Studio G film in HBO Max. Yes, and that animation looks terrible, and I have... It's their first CG animation, right? Well, it's actually Miyazaki's son who who directed it. Yeah. And they, they have Miyazaki on some quote where he's like he did okay or something like that (laughs) (laughs) the guy's like please love me father like you you love the children that you create (laughs) no oh yeah that's awful i read about their relationship before yeah no their relationships i mean miyazaki's one of those classic guys that is able to communicate with children all over the world but not the one in his home not the one in his home so it's a sad and all too common a story so uh, let me let me let me set this up a little bit. Miyazaki, born in 1941, I think that's really 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 important because that's about four years before a couple of cities got blown up by an atomic bomb mm. in Japan. And you will see in Miyazaki's movies a strain of pacifism, a suspicion of technology, a longing for the past a kind of nostalgia my neighbor totoro doesn't really establish exactly when it's taking place but it's something like in their 1950s it's just mm-hmm. kind of this an older generation mm-hmm. sort of vibe which you'd be forgiven for not knowing because the culture is different enough you can't really tell based on just watching the movie miyazaki doesn't like the industrialized world very much no he hates it and he he always he's always going to end with his characters coming to an understanding of how to live like close to the earth, close to the land. Something that mirrors some of our environmentalism in its own way. Yeah, very much that sort of... Just with a more Shinto vibe? Yeah, it goes with Shintoism, or Shintoism is like his handle for it or something, you could say. Well, let's let's, let's talk a little bit about Shintoism, because I did a deep dive into Shintoism. Oh, so, Shintoism is the biggest religion in Japan and there's no central text. There's not, there's not a Bible of Shintoism. It's really just a started as a, a, a regional thing. Everybody had their little spirit gods and those gateways that you see, those they're called Tori gateways. It's like the T shaped, the, the two pillars with the kind of mm-hmm. cross beam that points mm-hmm. upwards. looks like hmm. bull horns or something like that. Those are, those are Shinto. And basically those are sacred spaces. I think in, Totoro, don't they end up at one? And there's a little god statue, and she says, "Like, may I rest here, sir?" Yes, she does. That's <laughs> or, right, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So basically, I think probably we all sort of know what Shintoism is, just because we've absorbed it from Star Wars and from watching these kinds of movies and having these kinds of things in our pop culture diet. Basically, it's it's animism. It's the little scene in Pocahontas where she says every tree, every rock has a name and she touches them and they they light up with the spirit inside. Basically, everything has a spirit. They're called kami. And because there's no central text, they're not really very well defined. You know, some people think of them as very active, immortal beings, a little bit like Greek gods. 
uh, some people sprites, think it's woodland sprites or yeah mm -hmm. think that way or what or gin yeah sprites mm -hmm. gins yeah. They, they actually so what you're actually seeing in Miyazaki and particularly in a movie like Totoro or like Mononoke is or like any of them really any of the ones with fantastical creatures you're seeing a combination of Shintoism and Buddhism because what happened is Buddhism came into Japan and yeah it got synchronized and what Buddhism has is this vast cosmology full of deities and you know what they look like. And that's what Shintoism actually didn't have before. You ju you'd just say, oh, the rock has a spirit. The tree has a spirit. But what you wouldn't imagine is a creature like Totoro that you could actually see that, could, that would actually have some kind of a developed personality. And Buddhism, for all its weird non-corporealness, actually gave shintoism a little bit of its current more corporeal like personalized uh, personalized that is that is something you wouldn't expect <laughs> yeah 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 isn't that and it's, it's very weird it's kind of not into it's like yeah the buddhists came in and made it into more of a personal religion but shintoism was just more of the pocahontas kind of thing and i realize i'm i'm mixing my religions here but i always think of the little scene where she says every spirit or what does she say you think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. But I know every rock and tree and something has a spirit, has a something, has a name. That's Shintoism. There's also this strain. Again, it's not centralized. There's not a Bible. So it's a little hard. Different people believe different things. But there's ancestor worship. And there's a basic belief that man is good that people are pure until they get defiled by physical dirt or by spirit dirt, basically. You know, there are things that can come along and pollute us and corrupt us, be they spirits, be they diseases, be they these kami, these, these little gods. There are things that can corrupt us, but basically we're good. And basically what we need to strive towards is a spiritual purity that also is physical purity. Bathing, cleanliness, these kinds of things are really important. You'll notice in one shot of my neighbor Totoro, Miyazaki, making no particular point out of it, just puts a bottle at the bottom of the river that the girls keep going by. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a damning statement from him. I mean, that's this is not just Fern Gully kind of mm -hmm. woke ideology. This is this is a a religious tenet of of somebody like Miyazaki and something that he would believe really deeply. So I don't know that I think that's a lot of what you see in this movie. You're going to see that there's a really basic respect for authority. There are some good things like, okay, dad's kind of a doofus, but what we're not going to do is just write the boring scenes where, where dad is not believing them or is mad or where the doctor's the bad guy or whatever you would do. Miyazaki's just not even going to think that way mm -hmm. because actually you want those little girls to be respectful. It's, it's one, it would be one of the, they can be disobedient or they can, they can be bad little girls. They can be children. Yeah. They can be mm -hmm. children in any number of ways, but. They can have a fundamental respect for dad. For mm -hmm. granny in, or whatever mm -hmm. the old lady's name granny, is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And dad's going to be fundamentally respectable. Yeah. Granny may be somewhat terrifying the way old people can be to children, but also fundamentally a good person that the children respect. Mm -hmm. They're going to cast, uh, for our translation version, they're going to cast actual Superman as dad. Who was it? 
was it it's the guy who plays the animated super oh right 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 yeah (laughs) he does have that kind of vocal quality doesn't he yeah Yeah, i actually as soon as it hit i was like oh i know that i know that voice is that bruce wayne from batman the no it's not i think that might be superman i've never really seen any of those but i feel like that's like superman and i looked it up and it was nice (laughs) <laughs> good call good good poll cool but he has that kind of just like all american you can trust me mm-hmm. you know uh vibe in our in our version of it and that's that's by design and you know he's gonna laugh away the scary things and yeah as i said most of these modern translations were supervised by lassiter who's a personal friend of miyazaki and so they reflect Miyazaki's wishes for how these characters should sound, what the translation should be. No translation is ever perfect, but right. this is about as close as you're going to find mm-hmm. in animation. Also, because the mouth, especially they talk about the dad, they right. talk about how he should be characterized. He's going to say something. You don't cast the guy who plays Superman, right? Unless you have a conversation that says, no, he should feel just like an everyman kind of, hero dad that the kids would look up to as their hero you right. know and we can see the goofy side of him or kind of a weak side of him from our perspective but he's also going to still carry that for the kids like yeah some com- version of that conversation happened to well for that casting to happen funny story disney didn't always have the rights and lassiter wasn't always supervising weinstein our old friend harvey weinstein had mononoke yeah. and distributed it stateside and Weinstein, as he always did, wanted to cut 20 minutes and rescore it and do it his way. And (laughs) one of Miyazaki's producers sent a sword, like a samurai sword, to as a threat, just just mailed to to Weinstein's (laughs) office. (laughs) A samurai sword. Like don't don't mess with Princess Mononoke. And and Weinstein backed off, actually. One of the rare one of the rare times. Yeah, he understood. I think it was just like a token. That's amazing. Yeah, people like to say that Miyazaki himself did it, but Miyazaki's way too much of a pacifist to ever do that sort of thing. But they really they really care, and Miyazaki actually does have the clout to get these things done. Well so that's 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 Japan. Just to talk a little bit more about Miyazaki himself, he came up in the animation world, Magna and anime are huge things in Japan, and he always wanted to do it, and he did it. So he became a journeyman. He animated any number of TV shows, and then he got his big break directing a movie called The Castle of Cagliostro, yeah. which is part of a really famous Japanese franchise called Lupin the Third, the third which there again, Lupin the Third. Lupin is based on a French gentleman thief called lupin who's kind of a early 20th century pulp character and so i I just find it endlessly fascinating how they take stuff from the west and Mm -hmm. repurpose it it's not like we don't do the same thing back we we have our stereotype rich history of that yeah exactly and we have our idea of what what an easterner is like and what a samurai is like and i'm sure they watch movies that we make and are like really guys that's what you think of our culture that's that's crazy but i think it's interesting to for it to go both ways like that and and to see the other side of it yeah so it came up and then he got the resources together to found his own company studio ghibli or ghibli or whatever you want to call it and he did it did it with a guy in partnership with a guy named takahata who's another great japanese animator mm-hmm. and that guy's stone cold classic another one of the greatest movies uh ever made although 
I've only watched it once because it's Likewise. it's so devastating that I just I don't know that I ever want to see it again. And it's called Graveyard of the Fireflies. Just Grave, I think. Or Grave of the Fireflies. And uh, hilariously enough, it came out on a double bill with My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, my. Which is just a, uh, a such a stupid idea. And both of them did more poorly than they needed to do. That's terrible. Actually. But Miyazaki then rebounded with Kiki's Delivery Service and a number of other movies that have become classics in the genre. And then really broke through stateside with Princess Mononoke. The Weinsteins picked it up and made it really big and it was a hit hit and then spirited away won the academy award in in the states for the best animated feature which i guess was a category by then and the rest is history miyazaki is one of those people that he's not a household name in america but if you know anybody from the genre you know miyazaki and the important thing to know about Miyazaki, the difference between him and disney is that disney at the end of the day was more of a steve jobs he was an innovator he was a guy that brought all these different talents, talents together and then wanted to just build something. I think Miyazaki actually is an artist and a storyteller first. And when I say artist, I mean he draws thousands of the key frames for these animated movies. And what I mean by key frames is you have your head animator and they're going to draw the main pose and then they're going to draw the next main pose and it's going to be like the two big poses and then you're going to have people fill in the gaps. People fill in the gaps. <laughs> And so Interesting. when you're watching a Miyazaki movie, you're watching a movie that he has illustrated and painted and drawn thousands of frames. You're what like May and what's the main girl's name in this? Suki or something or almost Satsuki is something Satsuki. Satsuki. Yeah. Yeah. May and Sutsuki are not just like Miyazaki sent them to a committee and then they came back with this is what we think the little girls should look like. In any given frame, you're seeing this is what Miyazaki thinks a little girl looks like. This is his idea. This is the closest thing you're going to get in the collaborative medium that is a filmmaking to a single artist just having, pour, total control. having total control and pouring his vision out. And if that bottle is is there at the bottom of the stream, it's not just because somebody came in with the idea and Miyazaki said, okay, it's because he probably drew that bottle in, in the bottom of the screen. And that's why these movies take forever to make because I, I forget what the stat is, but they get something like one minute of animation a month or something like that. It is, they're, they're painstakingly slow. Miyazaki was, of course, very slow to adopt computers, although he does use them very effectively, uh, spirited away, and maybe Mononoke too. I think Mononoke does have some, yeah. But you really are just seeing somebody's, somebody's id, somebody's, you're just seeing inside somebody's brain. I mean, I don't, that's not quite true. I don't want to be completely hyperbolic about it, but it's the closest that you come. You watch a Hitchcock movie or a Spielberg movie, you're seeing a collaborative thing spearheaded by a really talented guy you watch a Miyazaki movie, it's much closer to, you're just watching a Miyazaki movie, actually. So I think that's what you need to know about Miyazaki. And have you ever seen the documentary, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness? Have I've heard about it. I have not. Yeah, we should watch it. It's about Takahata and Miyazaki and some other guy at Studio Ghibli. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a film worthwhile to watch it, Takahata died in 2018 I yeah and his last movie was supposed to be a masterpiece as well I didn't see that The but Tale I, of the Princess Kaguya I remember wanting to see it but yeah, not seeing it but I, yeah I haven't seen it but yeah so 
there you go, folks. That's that's my pitch for who Miyazaki, not just who Miyazaki is, but why you should care if, if for whatever reason you're listening to this and you haven't uh, watched a Miyazaki movie. He is just one of the great artists that film has given us and one of the artists who was in the right time and the place to express his personal vision. Mm-hmm. And his personal vision happens to be a very compelling one. And he tells great, fantastic stories. And I mean, not just fantastic, like they're great, but stories of fantasy and adventure and childhood and innocence and innocence lost and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. He's just a, uh, he's a really special guy. He's the kind of person who was made for popular acclaim, but also made for cults to develop around. If, if he's any, anywhere on your wavelength, then you just really love him and you want to watch as much of his stuff as you can and you want to spend some time thinking about it and you want to look up the website and read the books and he's one of those kinds of guys mm-hmm. so and neighbor my neighbor totoro some people would argue his masterpiece not sure whether i would argue that or not but yeah i'm not sure i don't know let's talk about it somebody want to like what is my neighbor totoro for for the uninitiated it's a really cute children's movie about two little sisters who are struggling with the fact that their mom is sick and may not be coming home soon, and they befriend a wood spirit, and nothing really happens except their <laughs> sisters who befriend a wood spirit and play like sisters and fight like sisters and get separated, and we're worried about the little girl, May, who just wants to go find mom and be with mom because she's afraid and uh, then Totoro comes and sends the cat bus and (laughs) saves the day and sisters are reunited and mom's actually doing okay and just had a little cold it's funny even as you describe that this movie it it occurs to me this movie is impossible to describe because you just made it sound like it kind of has a plot you made it sound like (laughs) something happens (laughs) (laughs) it's this is not about that it's just it's just it's just about hanging out with these two super cute sisters and it's more get, like a day in the life. Yeah, getting getting some laughs and if it's about anything it's about what childhood. I will say it's I I, I cried through the, about the last 15 minutes and I don't even know why. It was just it'll make you cry. It was just plugging me into some feeling of childhood or it, it or, all just it, it all just evokes childhood top to bottom. Like the dad evokes childhood the the way the sisters play is very the way they fight when they have their fight before may runs off it's the most realistically undramatic just that's oh yeah that's how it would go yeah it's just how Mm -hmm. it goes it's just like you see your kids like our my kids saw themselves in it i was really grateful for it in that sense it's just like it he held up a mirror to them Mm -hmm. and Mm-hmm. He didn't make them the hero of the story, you know, heroes. He didn't make them special. Uh, there's only special because they're kids and kids can see, can sometimes see trolls. And <laughs> But even that we only really know by implication and by the dopey lyrics of the end song. Like <laughs> it, the movie doesn't make a big deal out of like only kids can see. And, and Granny says, oh, when I was a little girl, I could see him too. Yeah. That's right. You yeah. Know? But now yeah, it's I can't. A little kind of offhand. Right. But. Yeah, it doesn't, it's not meant to make them feel special. It's just like, oh, this is part of the magic of childhood is you see things mm-hmm. that are weird and that you can't interpret. And adults can put a name to it and act like they know about it and laugh about it, uh, but you can't. 
and yeah, uh, just really sweet and super. And even the whole thing, May's gonna run off. May's gonna chase Satsuki around. Like Satsuki's not gonna. She's gonna be focused on you know doing the thing with the boy or going or like the kid's gonna get lost. Like I think every kid probably has that moment of they were supposed to come home. And they went home by the back way or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mom and dad got scared and half the neighborhood was out looking for him. Right. Some version of that probably happened to you or to somebody in your family. You were out looking for your sister or your brother, or you were the one that everybody was out looking for and you didn't even know, or you did know and you were kind of lost and you got found. Like some version of that happened to you at some point, mm-hmm. even if it was like the classic dumb lost in a crowd at the mall or at a at a carnival or something right it just evokes a lot of those kinds of feelings without diving deep into existential terror or anything like that but 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 really like all those feelings and and just how quickly kids uh can change how how quick their emotions can pivot mm-hmm. you know from laughing to she hurt me to oh no I feel guilty because I said a thing and she ran away and mm-hmm. to, you know, all that stuff. Was, so yay, cat mm-hmm. bus. <laughs> yay, the cat bus showed up. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one universal experience of all right. children. <laughs> yeah, the, no, it, this movie will really put take you back to the time when the cat bus <laughs> <laughs> came for you. <sighs> no, it is. I mean, it's... It, oh, go ahead. Well, and the only other thing I was going to say is you do see, even in just watching a movie like this, like, oh, like some of the things that you see in a like a Harry Potter movie or something like that, that are brought in that are supposed to feel magical, but and, and do a little bit or maybe feel off-putting or whatever. This is this is the actual magical version of that. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, you see some of that. The cat bus is a, is a great example of that sort of just like completely off the wall bizarre thing that actually just feels kind of magical that you would see mimicked in the bus scene in uh prisoner of azkaban or well the cat bus has that rare quality that true fairy tales have where it's completely inevitable and completely off the wall and ridiculous at the exact same time yeah so when you see the cat bus you're like oh yeah of course it's a cat bus (laughs) (laughs) and now we have an explanation for these random little straight line winds that fly through the that's right. Yeah. 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 It is fascinating how many of those feelings this movie. I mean, there, I just, I flashed back to getting lost at the mall. I flashed back to wandering around the apartment complex where, and just exploring where mm-hmm. we lived when the youngest time that I remember just stuff I never think about. There's yeah. no reason, not, nothing particularly dramatic or interesting to think about. No life lessons to draw on, no anecdotes to tell, just experiences and sense memories and yeah things. Yeah. Exploring I, little coves and little going into copses of trees and absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. All all of any number of those memories go through your head. The time that I was what, four, three or four, maybe. My parents were still together. I went down. I was supposed to come back. I went farther down. Then I should. I played at a house that was farther down than I should. I went inside. I wasn't supposed to go inside. I came out. I knew I could hear my mom whistling for me. I knew that I was in trouble if I was seen down there. So I went back through the back alleys. 
as I was running through the back alleys, I hear neighbors out calling for me and I try to sneak into the house, but I'm also terrified (laughs) and I know that I'm going to get beaten to death. And then my parents are just like, so thankful I'm alive and you know, (laughs) all of that, like Mm -hmm. that all came back. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) um, Oh, I remember the feeling of like going into the woods and like, man, you don't know what you're going to find or where this path will lead Mm -hmm. or like, you could kind of get lost in these woods. I mean, and if you go there as an adult, it's, it's like really there's silly. nothing there. <laughs> like, well, if I walk <laughs> four yards, it's really. Silly. I come it's out fun. on the other side. <laughs> well, yeah, and but that's as like, a kid. it's like the, I I've driven back through that same neighborhood even, and it's like I was two houses down. Like <laughs> it was not. Yeah, it felt like so far away, mm. and probably there were two or three people out, but it felt like the whole neighborhood, and you yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah, but, but what's fascinating is that Miyazaki basically films the objective experience of what you had as a kid. Like he doesn't yeah. hype it up like like a lot of children's directors. Like yeah, this not, is how the woods feel. It's it's more like just no. these are the woods. These are just woods. It's very realistic looking. Yeah, it's it, not. It's all very uh, minimalistic in the approach. Everything from the design, the things that happen, and the scoring, even. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, well, but partly because of the animation differences between this and Nathan, you can help me out here. I don't have the vocabulary to describe it, but mm-hmm. but the way that there's different there's layers of things going on, right? And it, it feels like the kids are walking through a painting or something. Like in a Disney film, when characters walk somewhere, it feels like there's less like real gravity. Like things can kind of bounce and fall, and oh, the plate is falling, but it's falling kind of slowly. You have time to whoop jump in and grab it and mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you, the characters just they could just move quickly or more slowly or if they're running their running can be not really representative of the laws of physics but in the miyazaki movie the way the kids move and run around just feels like they're in the field or in the woods uh, and so do you have the vocabulary for this what's what are they doing well what is miyazaki doing what i think he's really doing is just being painstakingly attentive to so what Disney pioneered was this multi-plane approach. Maybe you've seen like Disney documentaries where it's like you're laying a background and then you're laying okay. another character and then you're moving the different planes to try and give it this this 3D sense of motion. Sense of huh. motion. Okay. And it's not that Miyazaki wouldn't use those tricks. I think he's just using them much more subtly and hmm. much more carefully and with a with much more taking much more time and integrating the elements. I mean, what's what I hate about the 50s and 60s and 70s, like the, the movies that a lot of people really love, and they're good movies, but 101 Dalmatians, Stupid Fox Robin Hood, as I like to call it, and things like that <laughs> is, it always looks like you have a nice painted background, and then you have a character that's just kind of in front of it, and you never believe that he can actually interact with the background, with, with the background, okay. you don't you don't believe that he's gonna that he's, he's kicking up world. dust that yeah. he's in the same world. I mean, you do you suspend your disbelief, but there's always this. Huh. There's never the feeling of immersion that you get in a Miyaz- I mean, the closest or, or, I mean, the one place where they do that and really pull it off is when they stylize it in Sleeping Beauty. That's exactly what I was about to say. Sleeping Beauty is the is the closest to this style mm-hmm. that Disney ever got. It's also one of the more expensive movies, and just that's an example where Disney was, in fact, he hired a straight up artist artist, right, hmm. to handle all the backdrops and everything for that, right. 
Well, and what I said again, Miyazaki is drawing the backgrounds. He's drawing the characters. He's putting the details in. It is all one artist's vision as opposed to you got your background guy and you got your... It's not, of course, that Miyazaki doesn't have collaborators and people that work for him and stuff like that. He, he's not He's not that crazy guy that did that fake Aladdin animated thing, whatever that guy's name was. Oh, you know, the famous animator that did the Arabian Nights. Oh, I, even though I've been, I started watching that with my wife. I forgot that guy's name. Yeah, it doesn't famous, matter. Famous animator. Right. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that is crazy animation. Yeah. Just check Well, I know that the Japanese have different animation techniques too, but I don't know their names. You said multiplane is something Disney does. Mm-hmm. Miyazaki uses that as well in his own way. But there's other stuff too that I don't understand that's more technical. <laughs> Well, Ben, I won't pretend to be an expert in the technical side of animation, but let me read you something from Tofugu.com. Please. <clears throat> the full animation made famous by Disney and embraced by Japan studios used too many cells. The transparent sheets artists draw and paint images onto, then layered and photographed to make a frame of animation. We've all seen documentaries of Disney staff doing this. This required too large a staff and took too much time to make its production suitable or even possible for TV. However, this guy that they're talking about named Osomu, I believe he created Astro Boy, which was one of the first breakout animes, realized animation need not be fluid or fully animated to be enjoyed by audiences. After all, by flashing still images in rapid succession, even live action films create a false illusion of motion. Mushi Pro, Osamu's studio, developed a style of moving magna noted for its limited animation. He, from the start, they created intentionally something that they called anime, not animation. So Astro Boy reused cells, relied on visual and audio tricks, and used fewer frames of animation to create an illusion of full emotion. Mushi Pro's Yamamoto Fuchi explained, I'm sorry, folks, I'm sure I'm pushing the names. <laughs> In the end, we completely did away with the techniques of full animation. Then we adopted the completely new technique of making the magna frames the basis for the shot, moving only a section of the frame. So if I'm understanding that correctly, what we're doing is, and you can see this in all kinds of anime, where, for example, just imagine if you've ever watched any anime, imagine a guy that's holding a gun or pointing a gun at somebody. What you'll notice is that his body is very still, but maybe his eyes are narrowing and his hand is moving up Mm -hmm. and the gun is coming into frame. So what we've done then is, as opposed to Disney, where we drew a layer that was the background and then we drew a layer that was the guy and then we drew a layer that was the gun. We had like four or five different layers. What they're going to do is they're going to draw the whole thing. It's just going to be one painting. You could hang it on your wall and it's going to be of a guy without an arm standing in front of a background and then what they're going to do is they're going to have a separate cell that just has his hand with the gun and they're going to if they can get away with it they'll just move that cell but if they can't get away with it they, they will redraw that but what they're not doing is multiple layers hmm. filmed through does that make sense i think it makes sense yeah yeah well whether it makes sense or not what it means is that there's going to be a sense of stillness and economy and just wholeness to the frame. Like a a lot of the frames are going to be drawn together. You know, if you're looking at an image, it's quite likely that all of it was actually drawn as one thing or or a big chunk of it. 
Hmm. Whereas Disney, like we were talking about a minute ago, it's always going to feel like the little girl is more divorced from the woods, actually, or she's just moving in front of it, or Snow hmm. White wasn't actually there. Your eye, you can't really tell. It's not like you, you could point out what makes it feel different, but it does feel different. And there are all kinds of techniques. They're going to be shooting at a different frame rate. I, I, I did notice Totoro was the first anime I'd watched in a while. It does feel choppy compared to a Disney movie. They're shooting less frames and animating less frames. Here, I'll read this in the other part from this article. Full animation features 12 to 18 unique images per second. So that's like Disney animation. The result is smooth, fluid, lifelike motion. We're used to 24 frames per second. If I just watched a movie where Jake came into the room, it would be at 24. If Disney animated Jake, he would be at about 18 to 12. So it's about half or a little bit over half. Uh, Mushi production staff got away with only 1,500 to 1,800 drawings per 25-minute episode. <laughs> so It's not many drawings for 25 minutes. Right. And they would shoot like the same three frames twice. Or, or I'm sorry. They would shoot the same frame three times. So you have an animation of Jake holding his arm a particular way. You're just, that's actually going to be three films of frames of your film instead of they're repeating it. So it can feel choppy, and obviously we've all seen whatever Dragon Ball, Pokemon, the old Speed mm-hmm. Racer cartoons is the one that people like to make fun of. But Miyazaki's using some of these same techniques, but he's just using them with a bigger budget and with artistic discernment mm-hmm. to tell a story. But it's still going to feel a lot different than a Disney movie. So there's your somewhat technical answer. Cool. Thank you. From someone who doesn't know a lot about animation technique uh what else do we want to say about this movie definitely has some homage paid to forest spirits it does i imagine for a lot of kids this would be a very gentle way to introduce them to another culture and another religion without there being anything all that actively poisonous besides the idea that all these little forest gods are so darn likable Mm -hmm. and we Thank you, Forest Gods, for letting us live under the shelter of your protection mm-hmm. kind yeah. of stuff that happens. Yeah. yeah. What I like, though, is that they call them gods. And when she comes to the little shrine and there's a little statue, she says, may I stay here, sir? Like, it's actually striking enough for Christianized Western kids that they sort of notice it. It doesn't just go under the radar like something like Star Wars could mm-hmm. or a lot of yeah. the Easternized yeah, crap that... Yeah, there's no disguise. Yeah. It's just like, oh, they worship different gods than us. Yep. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. probably bad. Yep. But those gods sure are cute. I do wonder what the narrative tension of this movie would be like if I wasn't constantly expecting it to do the Western thing. Like I watched it with my wife who hasn't seen many of these and she was just constantly saying, oh, May's going to get kidnapped. She was expecting like the Stranger Things plot when May went into the mm-hmm. into the little grove there in the middle of the woods. and Oh, no. They're luring her away. They're demons. Right. Oh, no. The- Oh no, the mom's going to die or oh no, the it's just like constantly like her brain is trying to find the plot because that's what it's been programmed to do and Miyazaki's just like, "No. There's there's no plot. Mom's not going to die. It's no, no, nothing's happening." Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's just about hanging out. And I don't know enough about Japanese culture to know whether that would be intuitive to them or whether Miyazaki is an outlier. I I for whatever reason, I've never seen a movie by Ozu. Mm-hmm. But isn't Ozu a little more like that? I mean, he he has plots, but they're really like quiet. So Ozu, folks, is a 
famous Japanese filmmaker from the early to mid 20th century. And he is famous for these things called pillow shots, where a little bit like a haiku has a pillow word. It's just a random word that kind of separates two thoughts. A pillow shot, it'd be like me and Ben are talking in a shot, in a wide shot. And then we just cut to a tea kettle mm-hmm. and we lingle around the tea kettle or we cut to some clouds or we cut to a train just to kind of lull you along to, to the next thing. Which again is really interesting for me to watch at least as a film buff because it's like, oh, well, that's a way that film could have gone. That's a way that we could tell stories, I guess. Doesn't seem particularly intuitive to me, but that's how Ozu did it. And everyone else was like, no, we're not, we're not putting random poetic <laughs> shots of tea kettles. <laughs> well, you see that, you see the homage to that or the sort of like tipping of the hat. Like if, if you watch, I mean, a lot of, I don't know what movies, I, I'm not thinking of anything specifically, but anything that wants to try to celebrate or communicate Japanese culture to with Western sensibilities is going to have clouds going across the sky, lotus trees and lingering shots on tea kettles here and there. Yeah. To at least evoke, it's not going to be for any length of time. No. And you'll, you tend to use them as establishing shots, which with Nozu, it's not an establishing shot. It's just like, yeah. Or, or you'll use it like you can't get away with just using it and let it be what it is. So it'll be a metaphor, a running metaphor then. It'll be an establishing shot. Like, like, what's the flower in The Last Samurai or whatever? That stupid movie. Right, exactly. You're just going to keep cutting back to the same little... You're going to keep cutting back to that same tree with the same flower. And then when we have our seppuku moment, we're going to see the flower. Right. But for dumb, fat Americans, it's like, it's a symbol, idiot! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whereas a filmmaker like Ozu or like Miyazaki, it's like... It is the clouds. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> it's just a pretty flower. Yeah. They're don't, pretty. Hey, don't you like flowers? <laughs> I, I read once. <laughs> I read I once that, well, like in Ozu, this is something I've seen in other Japanese movies. You'll have a shot where, like, there's people in the frame, they're talking, and then they leave. And maybe you're in the hallway of a hospital. And, right. And then and it just, just lingers there. It just lingers there. Which, which, is the, which, which does establish the feeling that, like, you're really temporary. And I think those pillow shots that you're talking about do that work, too. Mm-hmm. Like. Actually, you're just a breath. You're nothing. This tea kettle is just as important as you and its way and the clouds. And so relegate yourself. There is an Eastern sort of, uh, well, the not nicest way to say it would be nihilism. Yeah. But yeah, there is something. Nihilism is right. Deeply philosophical and I think bad about their rejection of narrative and their, their just kind of we are all blades of grass kind of <laughs> feeling. Yeah. And and that is something that's very compelling about Miyazaki. He does that too. He will just have random shots of the landscape or of... But it the, seems... The... I don't know. I get... I. It seems like it works for me as a Christian. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's compelling. Well, I think we're so bombarded with information and with images and with rapid montages and cuts and YouTube videos and everything that getting a little dose of an artist like Miyazaki just telling us to slow down and smell the roses is nice. That is how, And that is how I take it when I see it in my neighbor Totoro. Yeah, I mean, part of the pleasure of watching my neighbor Totoro is watching it in conversation or at really in contrast to a steady diet of Disney. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. For sure. So 
we actually re- we rewatched it a couple weeks ago when I thought we were recording this episode a couple weeks ago. And I, I wasn't nearly as taken with it on my second watching. Mm-hmm. I found myself looking at my phone and doing other things. It's just like, no, the, my kids were still engaged with it mm-hmm. and still loved it and ate it up. And they, the thought of I would let them wa- rewatch a movie so quickly mm. was super exciting to them. They were jazzed about it. I brought it up and they were like, can we watch it? Can we watch it tonight? When we were discussing <laughs> whether or not this is the one to watch. And then it was a success again. And then it was a success again for them. But it wasn't It wasn't for me. And I was distracted. I didn't come to play the way I should have. I have to be in the mood for one of these. Or... But yeah, it's yeah, really like part of the pleasure, at least as an adult, is it's just offbeat enough. It catches you off guard. And you're just ready to sit down and... Kind of luxuriate in it. Yeah, uh, that, that's it. It's sort of like... True. A certain kind of book you have to read for the pleasure of reading. Like we had this discussion, we've had this discussion on the bookening about books like Gilead, where if you have to rush through it, if you have to rush through it for the bookening, you're going to hate it because the plot's stupid. Yeah. And the only real pleasure in that book is living in an extended poetic moment. And if you're not going to do that, then you're missing it. Right. You have to be in the mood for that kind of thing. And it's not like you need to brew some tea and sit and meditate. And, and meditate. Oh. It's just like, no, it's just mm. you're in the mood for something that's offbeat and mm-hmm. you're ready to just sit and entrust yourself into this weird auteur's hands. Mm-hmm. And then you, you'll laugh and you'll think it's super cute and it'll be fun and it'll just be different. And you'll be like, man, I wish that I didn't live in Walt Disney's world all the time. Mm. Yeah. The world could be so much richer. Hmm. Yeah. The world of movies, particularly kids' movies. The the moment that really struck out to me or stuck out to me that made me think about that kind of stuff is early on the the two girls are exploring the house and there's this rickety pillar that's holding up like a porch or something. Right. And one of them starts kicking it and kicking it and kicking it. It's just like ten out of ten American movies. That thing falls over, it hits dad or something. Yeah. Right. Or it's like a, a snarky Simpsons joke because dad mm-hmm. comes and stands under it and then uh, it didn't fall over. There's some expectation, build up, release, but it's just like, no, kids kick things and usually they don't fall down in a hilarious <laughs> stap- slapstick moment. Like yeah. there's, there's, again, I, I don't want to overstate it, but I don't know how else to say it besides to say there's something kind of profound about watching a movie where somebody kicks a rickety platform or a, what do you call it? Pillar a couple times and then nothing happens. It was, it was just a, where they yeah. search a house for ghosts and then, okay, I guess there's kind of ghosts, but they're so de- de- benign as to be a non-event. And then they just leave. And then they just leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no villain. There's no misunderstanding adult. There's no bad authority. There's no relationship that's like deeply impacted or for like Totoro doesn't become their best friend and their protector or anything. He just is a weird spirit creature who now carries around an umbrella. He really likes his umbrella. That's the depth of, of relationship. You gave him the umbrella and taught him how to use it. And he likes that. Yeah. And it's more like, it's more like that. If you're going to do anything with that, it's like an allegorical commentary on your relationship with the natural world and what it should be. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's really it. Like, you sh- 
Like kids have a natural connection with the wind and the trees, and they feel that they're related to that profoundly in a way that adults might find it hard to. But thankfully, here in this idyllic farm community, all the adults understand that because they're healthy and integrated with nature in the way they should be. And and they they mourn the the close natural connection that they lost by being adults, but they have a fondness for it. Want to cultivate it in their kids and teach them mm-hmm. how to engage with it in a respectful way. Yeah. Which man? I mean, there's some evil. Eastern philosophy wrapped up in that. And it's easy for us to poo-poo it as Christian Westerners. But I don't know. I mean, when I was a kid, I felt closer to nature. I would pick up a stick and it would be a sword and it would be fun and Mm -hmm. exciting. I would go outside like and just the rain would wash over me and like a a rainy day with puddles meant something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a cuckoo, you know, a Shintoist. It's it's our father's world. It's more, if anything, it's, it's more personal than my neighbor Totoro. Yeah. And we shouldn't make it less personal, but it's not more personal because each tree has well, a spirit. Yeah, we don't need to see a spirit in each tree. We need to see our father's hand. That's in right. In every mm-hmm. blade of grass and yeah. every grain of sand. <laughs> but Miyazaki and all his perversity does capture that. early Christian poet put it. Wait, what did you say? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, oh. the great Christian poet. The great Christian. Is it temporary? Nobel Prize winning. <laughs> <laughs> but Miyazaki does get at that kind of thing better than in all his Eastern perversity. He does capture something of that in a way that yeah, Christian Westerners with their Pocahontas and their Fern Gully and everything are so ham fisted. It, it, it feels more like I mean, as I'm thinking about it now and how, especially the more you go, like if you watch The Wind Rises, the last one he put out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the wind is just an image, and the wind rising is an image of our like mortal life mm-hmm. and how quickly it's over and how much to enjoy there is and how we better pay attention because we're going to die. Oh, and by the way, did I mention we're all going to die? And by the way, did I mention it's going to be over soon and you're going to die? That's the wind rises basically. But so it's like Ecclesiastes without, so therefore put your trust in God. It's just like, well. So if only Brett McCracken reviewed Miyazaki instead of Terrence Malick. That would be a good way of spoiling Miyazaki for all of us. Yeah, stay away from him, (laughs) McCracken. Just keep... Well, it is striking how hard it is to find positive existentialism. It's easy to find the dark movies that adapt Ecclesiastes, but Uh, Terrence Malick and uh, Hayao Miyazaki are popular precisely because they're able to evoke the gentler side of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) The fact that you do do your work every day and you do have your wife every day. It is satisfying. And it it is is satisfying. satisfying. Yeah. And there's something to that. Yeah. We don't have to make it into more than it is, but. Our movies don't do that. I mean, in the West. Yeah. That I can think, I'm trying to think now of movies that actually do that in some way. Not animated necessarily, but I'm having trouble. Well, what would be the children's movies that we could name that begin to do any of the work that this movie does? I mean, could we name one that just evokes childhood so effectively that kids love it, but also adults? I mean, you think of things like Wizard of Oz. Toy Story. Toy Story. Toy Story, it's like, imagine what that movie would be if you, you got rid of Sid. Like if you if you actually hmm. were allowed to just make a movie about toys. Like if you didn't yeah. have to have a villain, you didn't have to have a, like a buddy comedy. I like Hollywood movies. That's most of why we do this podcast. I like those tropes. E.T. Yeah, I think E.T. is probably, hmm. you know, I don't know that we're going to name a better one. Hmm. Even E.T., it's like, here comes the big bad government with their guns. Actually, they're not that bad. But they're not that bad. I mean... E.T. and also, by the way, E.T. a touchstone for for this. I mean, Miyazaki was 
Pizzini tea, which I think is 82, and this is like 89 or something like that. And he was he was riffing on it. So that's another movie that this movie is in conversation with. I feel like there have to be some more. I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue, but I don't know. Harry and the Hendersons. I have forgotten that existed. I used to love that as a kid. Ernest Saves Christmas. Ernest Goes to Jail was probably my favorite, or Ernest Goes to Camp. Those are horrible movies. Amazing. Yeah, they are pretty bad. Amazing that I was even allowed to watch this. I don't Folks, if you get us to what in the world? $2,000 a month, we, we, no, we, won't. <laughs> we will review <laughs> one of the Ernest movies. The yeah, American one. Tale. Yeah, that's true. It has more of that something. You know what, actually? It's uh, talking about evoking childhood, that's all. It does. Maybe this is just my childhood. Oh, I haven't seen that since but I was. The movie that somehow vibes on the same frequency for me as this that uh, that i can think of is the land before time that's i knew you were gonna say it. yeah that was what i was gonna huh. say next maybe it's just I, the slowness and the stillness i better not run over nathan because <laughs> that's where he's going <laughs> so yeah it's, it's the same thing it's the same it's, just, it's a kid exploring the world i mean he happens to be a, a brontosaurus or whatever but yeah. it's a kid exploring the world and learning how scary mm-hmm. and wonderful and interesting the world can be and does it hold up I, I don't know. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but well, yeah, so that's, it is interesting that we've gone to Don Bluth joints and not Disney joints. Well, yeah, that's we we went to Spielberg and Don Bluth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, we definitely didn't go to Disney. Yeah, because there's n- there is no place to go to Disney that I can think of for evoking childhood that sense of being a child. No. Well, one thing that animation does so well, and it's why it's why Grave of the Fireflies is so devastating and so much more devastating, I think, than like Schindler's List or any war movie that you should name that you could name. It's because when you see the little child who's dying because of the devastation of war, it's not an actor. It's not a specific child. It's every child. You can yeah. bring your own experiences of childhood and your own mm-hmm. your own idea of what it means to be a child and you can put it in this this object this animated thing that represents this this sort of platonic or what i don't know how to describe it in a non-hoity-toity way but may and satsuki are every girl in a way that dakota and ellie fanning playing the same parts in real life could Could never be and so i think somebody i think disney sort of got that at his best in something like the best moments of Sleeping Beauty or the most scary Pinocchio. Pinocchio. But he's he was so quick to find the lowest common denominator comedy, much of which he was very good at. I like Disney slapstick and the Seven Dwarves and stuff, but he was so quick to get away from what actually makes animation such a powerful, powerful medium. And many of his later career movies, there's like 101 Dalmatians and stuff don't really have that. They don't just allow for that. And so somebody like Don Bluth, I think, understands that animation can get under your skin, even as an adult, and evoke realities and terrors and kind of mm. Freudian subtexts and Jungian mm-hmm. monomyths better than live action, mm. actually. I mean, there's something about Fievel just in the little st- the image that you see standing on the rope in yeah. between the old world and the new world that evokes that kind of Ellis I- Island feeling mm-hmm. better than any live action movie I've ever seen. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic about that, actually. It's not that mm-hmm. the American Tale is the greatest movie ever made, but animation just has that kind of power, I think. Yeah. And somebody like Miyazaki 
really, really, really understands that. He understands that he doesn't actually need to do very much with Totoro. Totoro doesn't need a lot of screen time because Totoro can just mean so many things to so many different people and everybody can bring their stuffed animal that they had or their dog that they loved or their imaginary friend or their big cuddly dad or we can put all that into Totoro. What you're reminding me is that the closest, the next closest thing to this way downstream of Totoro might be Inside Out, actually. Yeah. Which is like meta, meta about childhood. Yeah. I think Inside Out may work. I mean, Inside I, Out it's is just too meta to actually evoke. Well, Inside Out's like. It's, comment- it's commenting on childhood more than it's evoking childhood. Yeah. Where, where Miyazaki it's, is it's all subtext, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. Inside Out is just text. It's just yeah, like, we right. are the emotions. My name is Joy. <laughs> Miyazaki. Sadness. Miyazaki could actually do the same thing, but you wouldn't know that you, right. he wouldn't have to call the characters joy and sadness. And mm-hmm, here's mm-hmm. Bing Bong, her old childhood friend, her imaginary friend. Yep. You know, Pixar, I think oftentimes, as wonderful as they are, and maybe it's part of what makes them wonderful, but they just tell you what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They just say, here's the equation. Here's here's what you need to understand. You know, Coco, like People die, and then we remember them, and it's, <laughs> it's sad. sad and special. You know, like, that's that's not the subtext. <laughs> that's just the text. Like, they, they built the whole movie, or that stupid new one that I couldn't even make it's it like through. Yeah, soul. yeah. Yeah. People want more out of their lives, and they need to be grateful for what they have. Like, these are not uh, morals that you have to dig deep, <laughs> you know. Miyazaki is just a master of being still and being gentle and letting those things creep up on you. In a way that hits you much harder, actually. Yeah, true. So, I don't know. Is there anything else you guys want to say about this one? I don't think there really is. Can we talk about how awesome Cat Bus really is? <laughs> I love Cat Bus. Cat Bus is, it's truly amazing. It really is. And the reason I know that is because it's exactly the one thing that I would hate about that movie and find off-putting, and I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the one thing that I would resent most. Yeah. And I don't resent it at all. No. It's the kind of thing that in any number of other knockoffs, I would, in fact, resent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's something and almost we, borderline demonic about it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that rictus big grin and everything. Like, yeah. It's got the mice or rat headlights. Yeah. There's there's that aspect of it, but then there's also the aspect, like, if, this, if we did this in the West, there'd be plush toys everywhere, and you'd see it on every poster, and... It'd be like, everyone's new best friend, Cat Bus. Get your Cat Bus at McDonald's right uh, now. It probably was in Japan. That wouldn't shock me. Oh, you know, oh, just, this is just a little note, but in every Miyazaki movie, there's flight. It's a big, big thing. Hmm. And there might just be flight, like in the his first feature film, the Lupin the Third uh, spinoff, yeah. Castle of Cagliostro. The Lupin flies by taking this awesome leap onto the roof of a castle but it's it's flight mm-hmm. this movie you have the kids like being the wind with totoro yeah but in mm-hmm. every in i yeah in in every one of Miyazaki's movies it's a big thing to kiki mononoke spirited away yeah, i can't, can't name I, one wind rises wind rises can, yeah. is about about, a, yeah. about an aircraft designer right and it is beautiful the way that he evokes flight like the way that you wish you could fly in your dreams the way that you as a kid like might look up and wish man i wish i could fly or mm-hmm. he just he just connects with that every time he does it, even in a movie that's kind of stinky like Hal's Moving Castle. <sighs> well, there again, I think he's able to get at something that's deeper about our desire to fly than 
someone who's doing a live action movie and we have to worry about the CGI of the wires that are holding up Daniel mm-hmm. Radcliffe as he's on a yeah. thing and he's mm-hmm. is, is like just through the media, the medium of animation, you're able to get at, you're able to dig deeper into, into people's subconsciouses. Man, I sound so pretentious in this podcast, <laughs> but I, I just don't know how else to talk about some it's, of this stuff. It's true. It is, I don't know, he taps, if you tap into flight, really, I think you tap into our desire for immortality and our desire to be like God and our desire to be alive. That's what his movies feel like. Yeah. Don't you want to be alive? Well, this is what being alive is like. Have you ever noticed how awesome it is to be alive? (laughs) Now you can fly. (laughs) Man, what a slap in the face to Shrek. I just want to say. Why are you <laughs> why are you thinking of Shrek? I don't know. I mean, just we're kind of coming out of such a crass, vulgar era of DreamWorks animation that we, we had to live with through our teenage years and into and maybe we're past it now a little bit, but like it seems like it's it seems like it ran it ran its course and Yeah, people got pretty pretty tired of it. Yeah, and it, all it did was set up a new D- Disney Pixar renaissance. Right. Mm-hmm. Which so I, you, I... People actually like to like things and not just hate them, you know? And that movie just hates everything. Right, yeah. And it's so bad. And so we got the palate cleanser out. We hated all the things that we used to love. And all it managed to do is remind us why we love them and why we want them again. Yep. Well, it is... You know, I like humor and sarcasm and snark and stuff like that. But it, it, it is kind of refreshing to watch a movie that's entirely free of any <laughs> any real sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, there is very gentle, like, observational. Mm-hmm. This is what it's like to be a kid uh, or, or dad just is a little bit of a doofus or something. That little boy who doesn't like her at first. Oh, I love Maybe Because he does like her. I love that little boy. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Katka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. said it had no sense of humor? It, it, I guess what I mean, it has a great sense of humor. Let me revise that statement. It has a wonder. It, all, there's a rich mine of uh, human comedy and observational comedy that this is drawing on. What it doesn't have is jokes and snark oh, and okay, sarcasm mm-hmm. and slapstick and any of the kind of humor that even a good Disney movie like Frozen or something like that. Well, it has, I mean, it just has actually funny things and not things that are supposed to be funny. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And my kids. It drew out more genuine laughs from my kids than I've heard from them in a long time <laughs> for that exact reason. Yeah. That's great. Like, oh, that's that's how life is funny. Yeah. As opposed to, it's a celebrity doing jokes now, making pop culture references. He's making waffles. Shrek is dumb. You know, even worse though, Shrek 2, Shrek 3, Shrek 4, Shrek's Moving Castle, whatever the, there's, I think there was another. Puss in Boots. Puss in, yeah, it's just all. You know, I, we're, we're past it, Nathan. Why beat a dead donkey? <sighs> I don't know, guys. Anything else to say about this movie? Nope. Me neither. Ben? Nope. I think it is remarkable how much in, uh, you can draw someone in by being slow and by taking your time and by not moving the camera. Like, so many American movies are throwing stuff at you and trying to keep your interest. But actually, if you're just really still, and you, then you sort of make the audience want to lean in to see what's happening and see what's going to happen. And Miyazaki's just really good at that. I guess I like this one. All right. Do you recommend My Neighbor Totoro, Ben? And I how, do. How many Treks out of 10 would you get? I don't know. Nine, maybe? Treks are bad. Oh. 
How many uh, copies of the Shrek Blu-ray do you want to send to Miyazaki's house? <laughs> out of ten. Zero. Zero. <laughs> I don't hate Miyazaki. <laughs> so it's that kind of movie. So this movie was so good that you didn't even want to send one. Uh, maybe half of one. I don't know. <laughs> Just for the the weird Shinto yeah. vibes. Yep, sure. Jake, how many copies of Shrek do you want to send to Miyazaki's house based on My Neighbor Totoro? I want to go to his house and be sure that there aren't any copies of Shrek. You want to remove copies of Shrek. That's right. Nice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is a masterpiece. I think it's one. I don't know. I, I'm hesitant to praise it even as much as I am because I think I'm making it sound sort of like important and medicinal and profound and it isn't really. It's pretty slight and it's pretty short. It's just a thing. It's just a thing and it's really good at what it does. It, it's the kind of thing that I can't imagine somebody watching for the first time and resenting having watched it in that sense it's truly great like i can't imagine you watching this movie and not being glad you watched it and not laughing and not thinking it was cute and a pleasant way to pass the time i I just think that in that sense it's it's about as near universal as as a movie can get Mm -hmm. you you may not come away thinking i need to ever watch that again I need to make sure everybody else knows about this movie. I need, I was, had any kind of profound experience or takeaway or anything like, you you may not have any of that, but I feel like just in terms of a universally pleasant movie going experience, this is about as universal maybe as, as they come. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It feels that way to me. Yeah. I mean, I had not. And it's been, it's not, doesn't feel like recency bias either because it's been like a month since I watched it. Sheen hasn't worn off. Yeah. I don't know. I feel weird about it too. I feel like maybe I'm overblowing it, but I don't know. It's not going to change your life or anything, but that's precisely what we like about it is that it's just like- It's not trying to. It's pretty modest. Yeah, it's just modest in its aims and modest in its successes, but it's really nice to see somebody just be like, I'm going to write a great haiku- and then just do it. Well, it is it is really, it is the convergence of all the things Miyazaki loves and would want his films to be. Like, if you think about in the film, you have all these farmers and their lives and kind of their humble work. And it's like he's saying, well, see their humble work or the tools they use or whatever, or the way they lead their lives, very small, very unimportant and very sturdy, actually, and very beautiful in their way. Well, here's a movie that is that. Just small, humble, and beautiful. That's right. That's absolutely right. A little bit like me. Your humble and obedient host. I was going to say that. Small, humble. And beautiful. beautiful. And beautiful. <laughs> you know who else are small, beautiful, and humble is our patrons. Yeah. And since I haven't done this for a while, let's just go ahead. We won't do this every time, but let's go ahead and give a patron's choice award of awesomeness to every one of our patrons that deserves it. And by deserves it, I mean that gives us enough money over at patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. So... Guys, what do you love about Caitlin? I'll tell you what I love. She's the best. She's like a Totoro level of of awesomeness. What about... Pleasant, sweet, and encouraging. Pleasant, sweet, and encouraging. What about Anthony? What are the defining excellent attributes of Anthony, Ben? He's artful. He's artful. And manly. And manly. Mm-hmm. What about Jacqueline? Is she a librarian? Yeah, probably. Hmm. She loves the books and the movies. She does. What about Jay? He strikes me as a cold kind of person. Nah, this is a different Jay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's still cold. 
all our J's are in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's true. He's cold, but he's... And he loves cheesy movies. Yeah. He's got a flint of manly steel in him. What about Jeff? Jeff's also cold. Mm-hmm. And he's also got a flint of manly steel in him. Yeah, he does. Exactly one flint. What about Ryan and Judith? All those flints create so many sparks. Yes, those flints it's do. your flints combined. A revolution is built on flints. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Sparky. Captain Sparky. <laughs> wow. Ryan and Judith, what do we like about them? I mean, if I needed someone to avenge me or to enact justice, I might give them a call. There's no bottle at the bottom of their river. I know that much. What about Seth? Hmm. What about I, him? I, I just think he's a great guy. Yeah, probably. I mean, he supports this podcast. Seth rides the wind, man. Seth does ride the wind. You make a fair point. Yeah. Seth's like the wind beneath my wings. He lifts me up where I belong. <laughs> All I need is Seth. Seth, Seth, Seth. You and Seth should have a DTR, Jake. <laughs> What'd you say? You and Seth should have a DTR. <laughs> what about Keith? Uh, he's kind of the master. Keith is the master. I like all our patrons, and I think they all deserve a patron's choice award of awesomeness. Mm-hmm. I do recommend that you watch this movie if you haven't watched it. I, I, I don't know that there's, unless you just really just hate the style, like you just cannot bring your, you're one of those people who just animate, all animation sucks. In which case, I'm, it seems like you're as... Or you're a missionary in Japan who deeply hates the subtle re- or not so subtle reinforcement of Shinta values because of how destructive it is and don't see it as a benign, oh, that's odd thing. I, I guess that would be a reason to, mm-hmm. a valid reason to hate this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not want to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. This is not Judeo-Christian, which is part of what makes it really interesting and part of what makes it bad in the ways that it's bad. Well, yeah. It's pretty great though. All right, to my neighbor Ben and my neighbor Jake, my neighbors, Ben and Jake, I bid adieu. Until next time. Try laughing. Then whatever scares you will go away. Go the road.